0: One of the most fundamental elements of the Dharma teachings that we're exploring here together in our practice is the the way in which the teachings point us to recognizing, to seeing the changing nature of experience. The fact that what we encounter, what we experience doesn't stay the same. And For me, I like to uh, subtitle this theme uh, way of reflecting on what it means to live in rental accommodation. <laughs> the Buddha spoke of change, of impermanence. Anicca is the word he used. He spoke of it as the elephant's footprint with regard to Dharma teachings. And the elephant's footprint is that footprint which encompasses all other footprints. And so the teaching of change is the the teaching which encompasses all other teachings in the Dharma with regard to the world of things. All that is subject to arising is subject to passing. And this truth, this reality, this aspect of what we encounter is something that we're asked to really look at. We're asked to explore. And so there's a way we can understand our experiences as if we were living in rental accommodation. And uh, this particular image and language for me resonates arising particularly out of an experience that happened quite some years ago now for myself and my wife, Catherine We lived here at IMS for a couple of years in 95-96 and I was here as the resident teacher and we got married just before we came to live here and when we went back to England at the end of that time we really didn't have very much in the way of uh, material resources or possessions and we were very kindly offered by a sort of a a local charitable trust that had a, a Buddhist community established nearby we were offered some place to stay and some rooms and uh, not needing to pay any rent for them. And it was really lovely. I thought, wow, we're being taken care of. And uh, we just had a few small duties looking after the elderly gentleman who was the, uh, the founder of the trust. And after about a year, I think it was, having been invited, as we were, to come and stay in this quite nice place, I have to say. so a rather lovely uh, estate. Uh, we were just as kindly and politely invited and asked if we might now leave. They would decided to start a Buddhist um, study center in the grounds, and they needed where we were. So uh, we had to move out in rather a hurry, and we moved through several different places over the course of a year, staying in friends' houses and managing to rent somewhere for a little while and then moving on. And then some other friends of ours, uh, Dharma practitioners like ourselves of some years and uh, friends from India were buying a house nearby and uh, invited us to come and stay with them because it was a very large house and they didn't really need that bigger house for the two of them. And it was really nice living with friends and about a year and a half after we moved in, they invited us and asked us kindly and politely if we might now uh, move out. And it was kind of one of those things, hmm, okay. And they didn't have quite such a good reason. They didn't need to start a Buddhist um, college in their spare rooms. But it was one of those moments where reflecting on the situation of how lovely to be invited, to be offered accommodation in this way, and with our friends we'd been paying significantly less than what we would have had to pay to rent that much space for ourselves, There's this sort of sense of what it's like to be alive as a human being to be inhabiting this body and mind. It's a temporary phenomena. And, you know, we have a rather unpredictable landlord when it comes to this existence. So it's useful and it's really encouraged in terms of dharma practice. It's really beneficial to reflect upon this truth that things change. And the way the Buddha often would invite his students and his followers to reflect on it, to contemplate in terms that all that is mine pleasant, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. Quite something really. All that is mine, pleasant, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And to really let ourselves be touched by this to let ourselves be affected by this. is something very powerful to acknowledge. As we all know at an intellectual level, of course, that we're not here forever, that those that we are close to one day will be parted from through death or through accident or through choice. And there can be a, a sadness, a sorrow, a grief with regard to that that's, of course, not inappropriate. And yet, we shouldn't really be surprised when such things happen in our lives, because they do. And although we know about the truth of change, it's not really a surprise to us to hear about it. Do we live our life in accordance with this truth? Do we let it inform our life? Often we only really pay attention to it, this is the way it seems to me, and often myself, we really pay attention to it when it's happening right now, when it's about to happen. And when it seems like we can think about it somewhere far in the distance, we seem to somehow develop a rather convenient amnesia with regard to this reality. And so reflecting on it, contemplating this this truth, this dimension, this characteristic of all experience, of all phenomena. This was something that was the basis of the the Buddha's own journey, his own search, his own seeking and spiritual exploration was prompted by reflecting upon this, having encountered the reality of of sickness, of aging, of death. As a young man, after being sheltered from from that for some time, he reflected on it. He, He thought to himself, why should I, who am subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death, why should I pursue other things that are also subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death? Would it not make more sense that being subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, that I would seek to discover that which is not subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death? Nibbana is the word he used for that. And so We can ask ourselves: Are we allowing our life to be informed by this truth? Change, impermanence—it's all around. We could ask any, you know, primary or I don't know what you call, prim- you know, early school age child, and they: Do things always stay the same? They will probably be able to tell you that no, things change. They know, and we know too. But do we live according to this? Do we really live? I find it fascinating to see how often I catch myself living as though things are going to stay the same. How many times? I remember this excruciatingly painful experience a few years ago when I was going to teach a retreat at Guy House. And it was early June. Guy House is the retreat centre in England, sort of a sister centre to IMS, and nearby where I live. And we'd have been having these really warm, sunny days. And it had been really lovely, and this is, you know, quite a treat. And I was getting my clothes together to go over to the, to the centre, and I was thinking, gosh, I don't really have enough tidy clothes that are lightweight enough for this heat. Most of my clothes for living in England, they're over 20 years now, are sort of for keeping warm, because it's mostly not that sunny or warm. You know, there's this old saying about England, um, what is it, something like, you know, if you want to tell what the weather is, look out the window and see if you can see the hills. And if you can see the hills, it's going to rain. And if you can't see the hills, it is raining. (laughs) And it's a pretty reliable uh, forecasting method. But nonetheless, it was sunny and warm, and I thought, wow, wonderful. But I got really anxious about finding the right clothes to wear. And so I packed, and I went along to the retreat, and after about two or three days of this week-long retreat, it started raining, and it got really cold. And I went to look in my bag for a, a sweater, or a coat, or something warm, and there wasn't anything in there. There was all these lightweight shirts for when it was going to be really hot all week. <laughs> and I sort of had to stop and think. You know, I've been probably talking to this retreatants already about things change. You know, we say it every day on a retreat, and yet something in me hadn't got that. And it's actually quite sobering to see how often and how easily we get fooled by this assumption, this projection, this fantasy. Actually of permanence, of continuity, of things extending forwards in time just as they are. And this is a major misperception that we struggle with, conceiving, imagining, believing that things which are not permanent, believing them to be so, to be permanent. In our meditation experience, how many times do we struggle with something difficult? Not because it's difficult, but because we imagine that if it keeps going like this, I won't be able to bear it. You know, it's really interesting to see how that projection of the painful knee and oh my gosh, you know it's hurting, and we start imagining what it's going to be like. You know, we'll be hobbling by the end of the day, and we'll be in crutches by the end of the week, and maybe the you know even imagining when they heard the siren coming earlier, you know it's it's going to be an ambulance. There must be, you know, that sort of projecting of experience into the future. How we do it so easily. Or a state of mind that we're struggling with and it's maybe we're feeling dreary and dull and tired and it's like we forget that these experiences come and go. We react to them as if they're going to be here forever. And when we say to ourselves, I can't be with this, actually it's not true because what we can't be with is the idea that it's going to keep happening this way, always. And it's true. You can't be with that because it hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. It's not actually real, that extension in time. In the moment, we are being with the experience that happenings now. So in that way, it's not true. We can be with it because it's happening and we're still here. <laughs> if we'd been annihilated by it, if we'd exploded or dissolved or been crushed, we wouldn't be even having the thought, I can't. Stand or bear or be with us. It's actually already happening that we're with it. And to recognize that, ah, oh, in this moment I can be here. And the tendency to project forwards in time, in time is linked to this belief, this way we have of seeking to project, somehow wanting to project a sense of continuity onto experience which does not in itself have that. The French philosopher Gaillot, I don't think, I'm I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but uh, um, he observed, if we know, but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Really precise and profound recognition of what happens. We think we know about change, but if we don't act according to it, we don't really know that things change. Something in us doesn't know that. And so the process of developing insight in meditative practice and in our lives is about actually transforming or correcting the misperceptions, the way in which we don't really see the way things are, and accordingly don't really live in harmony with them, but in conflict with them or disregarding of them. And that is fundamentally how we generate so much of the suffering that doesn't actually need to be suffering for us, and so the development of insight is moving from blindness, from ignorance, confusion, to seeing clearly, to to wisdom, to illuminating our life with the light of truth. And so misperceptions arise because we don't examine things very carefully. We tend to skip on the surface very quickly through the impressions that we encounter because they're coming at us from all directions and there's a lot going on. And so one of the things we do here is we kind of slow things down. We try and simplify things so that we can start to see more clearly what's actually happening. And what we see here isn't any different than what's happening anywhere else in our lives or in the world. Sometimes people talk about the real world as if it's something out there. This is what's real, what we see here. What we imagine out there is mostly unreality, tragically believed to be actuality. And so how does this happen? How does this happen? I think it's useful to reflect on it because it's not as if we're stupid. So Sometimes we might feel a little bit. Certainly I felt pretty silly when I had my bag full of uh, very lightweight summer shirts and it was cold and wet in England. So there's an image, a metaphor that I find really helpful for understanding how this works. And imagine you're driving in a car on a long straight road. I know you have some, maybe not quite around Barry, but certainly in this country there's some long straight roads. Imagine you're driving on a long straight road and you're looking at the front windscreen. And if you look at what's on the horizon out there, however far away from even though you're driving along, it doesn't seem to be doing much. It tends to stay pretty much the same. You're probably familiar with that. One wouldn't even think about it too much. And now imagine also you would look out the back window at what's behind you on a long straight. When you're in the middle of the straight, don't do it when you're driving. not. wouldn't be a good idea. But looking out the back, what, what do you see? It, it actually doesn't change very much because we're looking backward. We see some distant horizon backwards. Now, if you look out the side window, at the side of the road, when you're driving along at 55 miles an hour or whatever you're doing, 60 Miles an hour, what you see is that it's flickering past so quickly that you can't actually focus on a single thing. Maybe the sort of telegraph poles, or do you call them that here? Um, or some sort of you know, road markers, you see them coming up every 20, 30, 40 yards, or however far apart they are. And they're coming back tung, 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 going past. And one sees, if one's looking at the place where we really are, how quickly the experience is shifting and moving and changing. And it's like that when we just start to pay attention and stabilize, steady our attention in the present moment on what's happening right now. When we're thinking about, when we're transfixed with the future, we're projecting an image, an idea. It's not a something, it's an idea in our mind. And likewise with the past, it's a, it's a fragment or an image constructed out of memories. So when we think about the past, it's not the past. It's a picture based on the past. Not saying it isn't relevant to the past. We can learn things from our memories and understanding of the past. But the image we hold of it is a construct. If it was the past, it would take as long to experience it as it did for it to happen. And we wouldn't be able to because there's too much going on right now. So it's just a select little mosaic or image we make it fixed. It becomes quite solid. So it looks like that's how things were. though they were never that simple. And then from those images of the past, we project into the future, and we make an image this is how they will be. And it's like that wonderful, if we're remembering some nice things that happened, or horrible, terrible, tragic, if we're more oriented towards something difficult in the moment. And it's an image being projected that isn't in accord with what's happening. Because if we come out of those, that fascination, that intoxication with past and future, and we look at our experience, it's changing, it's flickering, it's flowing, it's moving. Constantly. From one thing into another. And so when we pay attention to the present, we start to see this truth, this reality of change, this characteristic of phenomena that are so important for us to truly understand. And we can look at the appearance of our own experience that we very easily and commonly imagine to be solid and fixed and that from which we construct an image or an idea of who and what we are. And if we look at our experience, we see this too is changing. Sight, sound, smell, taste, thought, feeling, images, memories, sensations. They keep coming. They keep Life keeps pouring through the space of this moment. Life pours through, and yet somehow we construct these ideas of who we are based on fragments that we patch together and try and hold together, mostly unsuccessfully. But we're trying so hard that we don't notice how unsuccessful the process is. So noticing our experience changing, paying attention to this. The tendency to want to make something fixed and solid out of it is not because we're somehow, again, particularly foolish or stupid or without intelligence. It's not because we're sort of obstinate, we just want things to be that way. It's much more to do with the fact that if we really allow ourselves to feel the fluidity the flux the change the transience of experience of life it can be really unsettling it can be quite scary and generates for some of us and probably most of us at least some of the time a sense of unease it's like so how do i do this thing called life if it keeps changing i can't get you know i can't get my strategies right because my strategies are based on it staying the same that's why strategies don't usually work <laughs> It's not because they aren't good strategies, it's because they don't actually fit life. And the, the most important thing we can bring to finding how to live well is being in the moment with the actuality of it, seeing it as clearly as we can. And whenever we're in the past or in the future, we, in our minds, we lose that possibility of really aligning, really attuning, really orienting ourselves on a moment to moment basis towards what's needed. And what actually helps, support and serve well-being, peace, freedom, happiness for ourselves and others. So this this vibration of change is unsettling. It's kind of scary. We often resist it. There's a sense of I'm not sure. I really want to let that in. You know. Yeah. I know things change. I know I'm not going to be here forever. But you know, let's not think too much about that for now. And our whole culture is geared around helping us, encouraging us to avoid noticing that. And so the orientation into the future, but not too far. If we were to really think about the future, think about the future, you know, 100 years from now. Well, that's a really different future, isn't it? Because we're not here. Any of us. And that's a very different feeling. It's not quite such a sense of security or certainty. And so. The tendency is, if we're not conscious of this, if we're not aware of it, to try and create a sense of security, of certainty, of permanence, of fixity, of reliability by investing in things, in possessions, in, in relationships, in identities, in even meditative experiences, which we seek to somehow carry with us as our sort of Support as our reinforcement, as our almost like our 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 bulwark or our um, sandbank against feeling the impact of of transience, of impermanence, of change, and the unsettling way that can touch us. The hope for security, for safety, for protection from change—it's understandable. It's not that we should judge ourselves for that, but it doesn't really work. Things don't last forever. And so it's not that we don't take care of practical things in the world so far as we're able to. It's not that there isn't a value in establishing commitments, relationships, circumstances, you know, providing so far as we're able to for taking care of ourselves in those ways, but understanding that these things are not forever. Just a little bit like children building sandcastles. You know when you build a sandcastle, that you have to build it in the tidal zone? If you build it where the water never recedes, well, you can't do anything. It's covered in water. If you build it in the dry stuff where the tide never gets to, try to build a sandcastle with dry sand? It just It's a flat heap. You pile it up, it falls down. So you build a sandcastle in the bit where the tide comes in and out. That's the only place it can happen. And sometimes children, when they build a sandcastle, and there's this material that, because the moisture's in it, you can build with. And sometimes you see them build the castle, and when the tide rolls in, they're distressed and upset. Oh no, but how else could it be? And other times you see the children, when the tide rolls in, they run and they help kick the sandcastle over and they enjoy it. It's the same reality, very different experience. Like understanding that even if one spent all day building this thing, its nature is to not be around forever. And I'm not talking about sandcastles anymore. So if we seek to find security, reliability, or permanence in things which cannot provide that, we're inevitably going to be disappointed. And sometimes it's easy to just think, well, maybe just the next thing, the next relationship, the next job, house, car, thing, the next meditation retreat will get me to that place where I can stay and hang out forever. It's going to be good. You know, and we keep imagining that the next one's going to do that for me. But if all the ones you've had up till now haven't, why should the another one be any different? <laughs> really, why? I mean, there's something sweet about our hopefulness, but it's it's kind of an innocence that's also tragic. Helen Keller, who was both blind and deaf and yet lived a remarkable life, she once observed, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature and nor do the children of mankind as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger in the long run, is no safer than direct exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. And really, Dharma practice, Dharma teachings are inviting us to take this as an adventure, rather than, oh no, things are changing, it's terrible, horrible, how tragic. It's more like, huh, what's possible in this condition? What does this offer or invite or call forth from our hearts and our lives if we see that this is so? I mean, it's also important to recognize that the truth, the reality of impermanence, isn't all bad news. It's not like it's somehow something that's you know a problem in all the ways we encounter it because well, you know, if everybody who'd ever been here was still here it would be really crowded for starters. <laughs> you know? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? That the nature of things couldn't be other. It's like the, the passing of one thing makes space for the next. That's the nature of life. And you know, when we're encountering difficult experience, of course, you know, we're pretty happy when impermanence shows up. It's sort of sometimes we're kind of, you know, come on, impermanence, yeah, you know. And yet it doesn't really quite work that way, does it? And the reflection on impermanence, actually, if we can reflect on, oh, okay, things don't last forever, that can really help us to be with the difficult, the challenging to know, oh yeah, even this, this too shall pass. No matter how difficult, this too shall pass. It can be sometimes a really useful thing to remember when we face that which is scary or challenging or painful. This too shall pass. And so we practice getting to know that in order to remember it in those times when we need to remember it. the, the changing and permanent nature of things is also the, really the basis of what can touch our hearts most deeply. The whole experience of beauty, however we understand or experience that. It seems to me it, it couldn't happen without things changing. Because anything, like you imagine something beautiful. Imagine a beautiful sunset. We have some lovely sunsets here sometimes at IMS. And just some beautiful colours, oranges, golds and reds on the horizon. Oh, how, how amazing, how beautiful. Imagine if it just stayed that way. Oh, that's lovely. Hmm, yeah, it's quite nice. After five minutes, hmm, yeah, okay, what's for tea? <laughs> it would stop being beautiful for us. Its beauty is in the fact that it keeps changing, that it's only there for a little while. If it's there every day, would we really still notice it? I sometimes think of the little flowers you can sometimes encounter in restaurants. And they've been made so perfectly that they really look like a flower. And you have to get up quite close to see, is this a flower (laughs) or not? Or is it a piece of plastic or fabric? Carefully and artfully crafted. And yet there's often something about, almost they're too perfect. There's nothing in them curling and drying up and dying. That's what lets you know that this isn't alive. And they can be attractive, but... They don't touch the heart. There's nothing wrong with plastic as a material. But what is it about things that touch us with beauty? It's the the vulnerability, the transience, the impermanence of them that speaks to our heart. And it gives us the sense of preciousness that our life is imbued with. If this life was forever... Would we value it in the way? Do we feel its preciousness? When my wife Catherine and I were first married, and for many, many years after, we would reflect on this together as part of the commitment. In the ceremony itself, we we began with uh, Catherine singing a a poem that she'd sort of created a song out of from an Aztec prayer that the primary refrain was only for a short time life has loaned us to each other. And it felt really powerful to have that sense of making a commitment in a relationship in the context of knowing that it was only for a short time. And not knowing how, that, how long that would be. And when we would be traveling, as I was often, and Catherine also sometimes traveling in a park, we just stop when one of us would be leaving and say, you know, I hope I see you again. Because so often we take it for granted that we will. And yet every day, people realise that they're not going to see someone who they thought they would again. And something about bringing that close and letting oneself feel that, it's very powerful, it's very beautiful to to sense that. And uh, there's a There's a small wooden plaque or sort of memorial marker at one of the monasteries in England that I like to spend some time, Chitthurst Monastery, where one of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, lives. And it's inscribed with a little poem, a haiku, and a, a name and a date. And it says, The cherry trees, the cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for just a few days any longer and we would not treasure them so. And then it's got a name it says Little Sam and a date, a single day. And for actually quite a number of years I've, when I'm at the monastery, I go back and I just spend a moment at that point and just at that place and just feel the sense of the the preciousness of a life that was just for one day, so beautifully expressed. The preciousness of life that isn't forever. To let ourselves feel this, to know this, to be really touched by this is one of the gifts of opening our hearts, our minds and our lives to this teaching, to this truth to this reality. And to see how it also starts to free us, it begins to liberate our relationship to the world and to things, to our very own mind, heart, body, and the things most close to us, most precious to us. Because when we start to see that this is how things are, that we are living, and rental accommodation. This is a borrowed situation and one day it's gonna be, you know, the lease is gonna be up. Time is gonna be called. Well, we see that. It changes our relationship to everything. It was really interesting, the home. With the second of the two scenarios I described at the beginning when Catherine my wife and I moved in with these two friends of ours, they'd bought a house. It was a lovely house. It was quite a large house and uh, plenty of room for several people. And we were like, wow, this is a nicer and a bigger house than I'd ever lived in. And it was very interesting, our relationship to it and theirs, because they moved in. It was their house. And they looked at it and thought, oh, we could move this wall. We can change that room. We can do this with it and that with it. And I had no such thought. It was just like, wow, this is great. And the relationship we form with something when we think it's mine and I've got it forever is that now I want to improve it. I want to fix it. I want to sort it out. Whereas if we know we haven't got it forever, it's like, hey, I can just enjoy living in this thing. And you know, if we look at this body and mind and heart in that way, and this life too, we don't necessarily, and certainly what I find, I don't experience the compulsion to have to get it perfect and fix it And that way we can be more at peace with its sort of crankiness, as Pascal was speaking about so delightfully last night. It's like seeing, yeah, it's not going to be like this forever, so I can work with it for now. And that sense of space comes. Oh yeah, I can accommodate, I can work with, I can be fluid here. Because things are fluid. And so we actually quite naturally get called into a... By seeing this truth, we get called into a relationship that's appropriate, that's skillful, that's aligned with the way things are. And that is really the, the foundation, the formula for the reduction, the dissolution, and ultimately the ending of suffering. It's not just through insight and wisdom. It's through aligning our life with the way things are, living in accordance with the truth of things, at all levels, in all ways. And so, the wisdom of seeing this truth informs how we relate to experience, informs how we handle it. And we can start to make more space for that which is difficult, and equally make Allowance for the reality that that which is lovely and delightful to us isn't forever. And that doesn't mean that we disregard it or dismiss it at all. In fact, quite the opposite. It allows us to honor that which is lovely and beautiful more fully. And to learn to let go, to learn to let be. This is really founded on seeing the changing nature of things. William Blake, the the poet and mystic, he, he once said, he wrote, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Remarkable, beautiful words. When we bind ourselves to a joy, when we try and take hold of something lovely and beautiful, we it's like, in his language, we, the winged life is destroyed. The lightness, the uplift, the flight of life, the movement of is, is destroyed, is crushed. But... To say, don't take hold of things, doesn't mean stand back from them. It doesn't mean disconnect and keep away because we might suffer. No. Actually, to kiss the joy as it flies, to make intimate contact with it. Such a beautiful image. It's moving, but we can touch it with intimacy. That is to live in eternity's sunrise. The dawn of the timeless and the deathless is revealed in that contact. To kiss the joy as it flies. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. In some ways, that's the whole teaching. So allowing ourselves to be touched by that which is beautiful and sweet, to be really present here for those moments when they come. And equally to not reject that which is difficult or challenging, to understand that its nature is fluid and moving. And this is particularly important for us to understand with regard to the emotional life. The process of how we experience and are so profoundly impacted and affected by the condition of our heart and mind, which is so important to us. If we understand that our heart and that that qualitative felt sense of experience is something that is fluid, then we can actually make peace with the fact and the reality that sometimes It's as we wish it to be, and sometimes not. Khalil Gibran in The Prophet writes, If you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, then your sorrow would not seem less miraculous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you accept the seasons that pass over the land. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. I find these words very poignant and penetrating in the the sense of the image that's being offered. The seasons of the heart we'd all love to live forever in summertime or the buoyant blossoming of spring and the the flush of new life and its fullness in summer. And yet the nature of life is such that that freshness, brightness and movement and growth isn't sustainable. Summer inevitably has to die back into autumn and the dropping and fading away of things. And autumn dies into winter. And the harshness, the cold, the the seeming lack of aliveness that we can encounter. And yet from that very winter, from that very dying back, that is the place from which the new growth, the seeds of life, spring forth again in their tender green shoots. To understand in our hearts wherever we are. That when it's spring or summer, this isn't forever. And that likewise in autumn or winter, or whichever season you prefer. Because sometimes it's a little different. When I talk about this in Israel, teaching there, summer is not the one that they like to continue. They're waiting and hanging out for winter over there. It's kind of interesting. But it's the same principle. It's the cycle. It's the, ry- the rhythm and flow of life that passes through us just as it passes over the land in cycles and flows. To make peace with this, this changing nature of our heart's experience and to watch with res- serenity understanding the nature of things in this way. As we do this, we see the wisdom of impermanence showing us to not try and fix to hold, nor to resist the way things are. To not struggle with the truth of our life, but to enter into it more and more wholeheartedly to see what is true and what is fundamental at the heart of it all. There's a beautiful refrain from the the Diamond Sutra, one of the teachings of the Mahayana, the later northern Buddhist schools, which invites us as, again, the way to look at our experience and this life. It says, thus you should look upon this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom, a mirage, and a dream. And those images, one after another, really bring that sense for me of, of the evanescence, the transparency, the fluidity, the flickering of experience. And when we see it, it's like, don't it doesn't make sense to try and take hold of this. Sometimes we see it in the flickering nature of things moving and flowing and change. Sometimes we see the wisdom of that in the When we try and hold on to things that are moving, it's like we get rope burn. It's like the friction between our holding and the fact that things are moving is what we call suffering, dukkha, pain. And if we hold on even tighter, thinking that we can grip hard enough to stop things moving, we're kidding ourselves. We can't. We can lose the very skin of our hands. The very way in which we make contact becomes so tenderized by that process, that we have to let go. We have to let go. And then the letting go of imagining that things which change could offer us something that they cannot, In actually opening to the simple presence of life, the, the simple here and nowness of things. We can be touched in ways that our mind cannot conceive and yet that transforms our heart. As we let go of the things that are moving and flowing ungraspably through our fingers, through our hearts and our minds, thoughts, and feelings, and experiences all as they do this. We allow ourselves to be sensitive and fully present for the deeper discoveries of life. The Buddha said in the realization and discovery of his journey's fulfillment that began with questioning what he should seek for he said there is that which is unborn unmade undying and because there is that which there which is unborn unborn unmade undying there is deliverance in this world. There is freedom in this world. What was he pointing to? What was he inviting us to be deeply interested in discovering? In my early years of practice, I spent quite a lot of time in India. I had the good fortune to practice in a, in a monastery in Budgaya. Hmm. I remember and often reflect on an experience that happened to me there where I had come back to the, the same place, having been there the year before. Was really enjoying the puppies that live in the monasteries. Monasteries are something of a sanctuary in Asia for all kinds of waifs and strays. They're sort of a sort of retirement plan for the uh, elderly villagers, and they equally are the place in which the uh, the stray dogs and the occasional donkey or random chicken turns up and knows who won't get it eaten. Um, and so you find a lot of creatures there, and some of them are in you know quite difficult conditions of poor health. But at this place. There were these puppies that used to just be full of vitality and exuberance and be running around all the time. And so if you put your plate down when you'd be sitting out in the grass eating our lunch, if you put it down and didn't keep an eye, they'd come along and sort of help you in case, you know, you needed to sort of someone to wash your plate or you know. Or if you were walking really mindfully, they might come running past chasing each other and just bump into the foot that was in the air to see if you were really mindful and had your balance or if you were going to fall over. And I used to just love these little creatures. They just filled my heart with joy. And some point into this retreat, and I think i have been practicing for about two weeks at this point there, I suddenly realized that I thought all those little puppies were the same ones that I'd been with last year. And it struck me like a sort of a a gong in the head, It was like, what, no, of course. The little puppies that were there the previous year, they're all grown up. They're adult dogs or they've and they've, you know, gone off, or some of them maybe haven't survived. But these little puppies are completely different beings in one sense. And yet reflecting on it, just feeling it, it was like I suddenly had this moment of remarkable clarity. And it was like, huh, the puppies keep changing. It's not finished. <laughs> the puppies keep changing, but puppy nature doesn't change at all. And that's what I was seeing the light shining in their eyes, the tenderness of their struggle or fighting sometimes for some food, and the joy of their abandoned running about when they'd eaten. Something wasn't changing, that was there, that somehow was being shared with me through that experience. So, here in our practice, we're invited again and again in the fullness and the wholeheartedness of intimately engaging. Consciously opening to, with interest, this life, moment by moment, to really come to know for ourselves the nature of life that is not changing, that is always as it is, always just so. to allow ourselves to sink below the surface of appearances and the flickering myriad of moving things. Not that we leave them behind or stay apart from them, but just not imagining this to be all that is here. And yet equally not imagining that there's anything else, because there isn't. just not taking hold of a position either way and see what we discover in the depths of our life just as it is, right here. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to more and more deeply recognize the changing nature of things and to realize the the truth and the nature of life that is unchanging. For our own welfare, and for the welfare of all beings.